So we do have line of sight to actually really think about these things now, right? For these things coming together in a way that we can think about. So really radical ideas such as uh, instead of just curing cancer to really understanding how the underlying biology works to cause cancer and prevent that, right? And so instead of going therapies that target the effects of, of cancer, to actually be able to go after creating technologies that prevent the actual process of uh, cancer from happening in that way. Welcome to The Syndicate the podcast about the investors behind the overnight successes. It takes years, it takes money. On this show, we interview the top angel investors, venture capitalists, and startups to share what it really takes to succeed with startup investing. I'm your host, Matt Ward, and I'm a serial entrepreneur and angel investor. And I believe startups are the future, and angel investing is the best way to build real true wealth. To find out more about us, please visit thesyndicate.vc. But now, let's get on with the show. Hey guys, today we have one of the most interesting folks in the in the business, Ramfus Castro on the program. He's an investor, he's a startup guy, he's a lot of things. Thanks for coming today, Ramfus. Thanks for the invite, Mike. So Ramfus, you have a really, am I pronouncing it right? First of all, I'm terrible with names. No, it's Ramfus, like Memphis with an R. Like Memphis with an R, I like it. Thanks for coming today. So I wanted to get you on the program because of what you're doing with ScienceFest, essentially looking at investing in companies and in ideas that typically would not get funding. So talk me a little bit through that and then we'll dive a little bit deeper into your story. Sure, sure. So ScienceFest is a first check deep tech venture capital fund, uh, impact only. So we, we focus on breakthrough core technology companies uh, that change the way something is done right now that are typically commercializing uh, intellectual property from universities. And the thesis came about as part of my work as a Kauffman Fellow for trying to figure out the solve the funding gap for science uh, around uh, supporting very early stage core breakthrough technology companies. Why is there such a large funding gap for science? Is it the timeframes? <sighs> Not really. So that's changed quite a bit uh, from the way things are done before. I think you've seen some of the changes in terms of things that we take for granted in startups in terms of the lowering cost of uh, cloud computing, the lowering cost of storage uh, to areas of deep technology around synthetic biology uh, and biomanufacturing, cost of genome sequencing, those kinds of things. Definitely has pushed forward what's what's the opportunity that's available for founders to start companies earlier. But what's the, the biggest challenge by far uh, is that from investors, from these founders having the right kind of partners uh, on the capital side that understand early enough how to be helpful at that stage. So every Everybody tends to see these companies as outside of their core area of expertise. So everything is too early for most uh, investors, even though they, the, these companies uh, are, don't necessarily have regulatory risk or they're doing something that when you compare from a risk adjusted basis into uh, other companies uh, in the space, it's just the opportunity is much larger. Basically, they're transformational for the nature of reality, a lot of these type of companies. And yet, because they are so transformational, it takes a ton of time and money to get them to market. Not, not, it's not the time and money. It just it requires a particular set of expertise to get there. Right? The team that you have to build around yourself to do that is, is a little bit different. And it's typically outside of the core expertise of how most investors feel that they can be specifically helpful. I think we can kind of dig into that a little bit, but yeah. Definitely. What, uh, what areas are you most excited about? So definitely the, the intersection of computational resources uh, and biology, right? that mix of, so think of it as the, the drug discovery uh, for, for uh, using AI, right? Those, those kinds of opportunities. Uh, think of also around synthetic biology and biomanufacturing, right? like creating custom, custom chemicals for uh, specific applications. And then how does that change? So for example, around, you know, the fragrance industry, right? Companies like Ginkgo, Bioworks, right? Those kinds of are examples of companies that are just extremely exciting. And, and there are opportunities now that uh, were, not, uh, were not really possible 10, 20 years ago. And that's primarily due to the cost of compute coming down and then the cost of genome sequencing coming down. Uh, there, there's a mix of things that make this, that are in sort of enabling technologies, but, but think of 
a lot of all these trends coming together, right? So AI, machine learning, uh, access to computing, cloud computing, the integration, the better understanding of some areas of biology as well, and all these areas coming together in a cross-discipline way. Right? So now you have professionals uh, that essentially grew up with the internet and with a lot of these different technologies. So they might be a hardcore biologists with uh, extremely strong uh, computer science skills as well. Is the 21st century going to be defined by biotech and synthetic biology like the last was by compute and mechanical power? That's a great question. I definitely think that that is, that is one of the areas I'm most excited about, right? The opportunity for that to be the case for So we do have line of sight to actually really think about these things now, right? For these things coming together in a way that we can think about. So really radical ideas such as uh, instead of just curing cancer, uh, to really understanding how the underlying biology works to cause cancer and prevent that, right? And so instead of going therapies that target the the effects of of cancer, to actually be able to go after creating technologies that prevent the actual process of cancer from happening in that way. Yeah, Yeah, let's wear a helmet while we ride the bike versus fixing the head afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's exactly, that's a great metaphor. It's incredible how backwards the industry is, but I'm, I'm very excited to see some of the things that are happening. What I get a little bit worried about with, with that space specifically is trying to come up with technical solutions without addressing the underlying actual problems, which is typically nutrition and exercise. I, I've, seen, I've seen some really compelling stuff to say cancer is primarily a metabolic disease. So, so I think that's where we, we all just generally to be careful because the, the, the area, and going back to my background, right, I'm a computer engineer by training and my partner's more on the biotech side, uh, is that the biology, the understanding of the underlying biology, we still have a long way to go in a lot of areas, right? So think of a lot of things are more black box related than the specific, we, 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 you know, biology, biology does not behave like computer code where you can tell it what to do and actually, you know, for a fact, it'll always work in that very specific way. Uh, it's a lot more complicated than that, which is where the opportunity is for a lot of these technologies like uh, AI and others uh, to permeate the space so that we can better understand just the basics uh, of how biology works and how other aspects of, of that biology work together. So think of more genomics and proteomics and some of these areas where it's not enough to know how some of the biology works, but how does it work with you and your specific makeup? And what does that mean for how we're building and designing and thinking about how we're going after some of this, these potential solutions? How, do, how should scientists think about move fast and break things? Like if you invest in a company that accidentally creates a CRISPR plague, we, we have some trouble. Yeah. Uh, so I think I think that's where the core science matters a lot, right? Like we fundamentally, in our case, uh, we start with the science first. Right? We really want to understand what's what's going on, who's behind it, who's actually behind it. So most of the companies that we bag, the founders that we work with, uh, this is their life's work, and their advisors, it's their life's work as well. So the the expertise around a particular area of knowledge, you know, they, it is at the the edge of what humans know. Period, and it's an extremely hard space to operate in. Uh, and just a scientist, you know, from an ethics standpoint, uh, everybody does the best that they can with the tools that we have. So be mindful of uh, what are the consequences and what are the outcomes, or something that uh, they are constantly thinking about. And something we also look for uh, deeply. We care about deeply for the founders that we support. Right? We want founders that are thinking about this. That's part of their their driving mission is to really understand the potential unintended consequences of what they're building and the drivers of why uh, and all these things. So yeah, you're 
you're absolutely right. Uh, other things to worry about. It's very difficult. It's very, it's very difficult. I wouldn't say it's almost impossible to know what the potential unintended consequences might be for enabling technologies that we have now, right? It's just like talking about social media and internet addiction now, where, you know, it was not obvious necessarily 20 years ago, or maybe all of us on the open source side, that, that that would be the case. And now things are moving significantly faster, but that is also, that is technology. How do you deal with universities who can oftentimes be a bit of IP whores in terms of scientists create something incredible and then the university wants to steal it? So I think I think the, the, the challenges for universities, and that's an area that is not talked about enough that we all need to work together on, is, is really to help the universities understand that the best outcome for them is that the founders and the scientists that created this technology that actually want to build companies around it is how you create wealth for the university uh, as well, right? When you think of the largest or most well-known universities, they are a part of uh, some of the more iconic companies that are spun out from, from their research labs. Uh, and then the, uh, the alumni understand the help that they receive from the university. So it is in the university's best interest to help their uh, potential entrepreneur scientists to spin out technology so that when they make it, hopefully some of them will make it, uh, then they come back and build them you know, a new bio lab or a new engineering lab, which we see all the time. Uh, some of the larger campuses. So, so it's something to rethink, for universities to rethink their position. Many of them are, uh, and they understand the pressure that they're under, uh, and they know that their model for licensing uh, in the way that they did it do, do not, does not work for them. Yeah, ba- basically it's a dying model based off of a monopoly. How do you think, yeah. about, how do you think about scientists and researchers? They, they kind of have two routes. They can go the academic university route and try to create IP and later possibly commercialize it or find an entrepreneur to do so. Or they can go directly the startup route and then try to create a business like a 23andMe style. Yeah, uh, I think, I mean, for scientists, it, it really depends. There are different, different motivations for, for different types of scientists. Uh, so, some of them, and, and, and I, I divide them in two buckets, right? I mean, the basics for research, and, and we need more of everything, period, right? Around all kinds of, of fields of science. Uh, and, and, and that's required. That has a very long, long-term horizon to really create this enabling technology. Just think about the... the uh, or kind of, you know, create the TCPAP protocols back in the day and operating systems and kernels, like these kinds of really core enabling technologies on one side and also on the biology side. And then applied sciences, right? How do you take something that actually works uh, and you think about how does that apply to real, solving a real problem in the real world? Uh, and, and scientists can jump from back and forth, right? I ha- we have some that are really keen on the research side and they, that's where they're best at. And some other members of the team are really uh, strong on the commercialization aspect, but you need both, right? You need really strong research-focused uh, uh, scientists that can really lead through those teams and scientists that understand uh, why it matters to the, to the greater good for humanity. Speaking of greater good, what should be open sourced? Like you brought up HTTP and uh, whatever the other one was, which were great internet protocols where the creators essentially earned absolutely no money. And then yeah. at the same time, how do we think about that in terms of the biotech industry going forward? Well, I think that the key challenge there is around publishers, right? And the control of the articles. So when you think about intellectual property, I mean, the patents, when you patent something, and I'm, I'm on the IP, it's with my background as a lawyer. When you, when you patent something, the idea is that you have a certain exclusivity for a certain amount of time, and then in exchange, you release it, right? So essentially, most of the technology, so Google's PageRank algorithm, for example, right? And, and that's, that's out there. And you can think about the same thing for, for biology. So the papers, especially the papers, right? The IP is like, 
RFP, but the papers themselves, for that to be accessible to everyone in, a, in, a, in an easier fashion, uh, is definitely where we should be trending and, and what we should be discussing, right? So like open, you know, open publications and sort of open sourcing those data sets uh, that enable the research so that others can, can leverage that. So that, a lot of that is, is out there and happening, and there's a lot of cross-pollination and collaboration across scientists. Uh, the key challenge is around some of the access to the papers for those from outside academic institutions or may not have access to the, the publishers themselves. Also, what gets published? So you look at Big Pharma and they'll take a drug, they'll try to guess what it does. They'll test out people to find the perfect people for the test. They'll run four tests. One of them will be successful. So that's the only one they publish. How do you think about, how do you think about the ethics? Typically, the pharma industry has been incredibly dirty and mercenary. How do you think about the biotech industry to avoid making those mistakes while still making money? So I think on the, on the biotech side, I mean, it's a huge, massive sort of global industry. And I think kind of we can go into like all of it. But the, the sort of bite-sized version of that is that a lot, the, a lot of the industry understands that a lot of the innovation is happening outside of their core research facilities, right? So if you think about kind of what they're focused on in researches, et cetera, and kind of what they're focusing resources, they understand now that they need to partner with uh, startups and companies uh, to be able to access some of that uh, core innovation uh, and then for them to focus on what they do best, right, which is sort of scaling up those kinds of operations and other aspects of that research and industrial R&D and some of those aspects. So, so it's really around collaboration and, and, and improving uh, and streamlining more about how that process works, which a lot of them are moving in that direction, right? We, we talk about New York and, and, and Silicon Valley elsewhere uh, where you have a lot of these programs coming online to facilitate that, like the J-Labs, right? We have uh, strong collaborations between industry and startups for the purposes of these startups to leverage corporate resources and, and it works the other way around. IndieBio, right, which is opening a, a new campus in New York, uh, created Destruction Labs, opening a campus in New York um, with uh, collaboration with NYU, I believe. So th- those are happening where the industry understands that there's a huge opportunity for doing more collaboration and the startups, their ethos is around sharing right, and collaborating is a lot of that to pay forward mentality. Um, but there's obviously a long way to go. Um, and in terms of having better access to everything for everyone at all times, it's, it's, it's a tricky, tricky space to navigate. What about topics for research focus? Most of, the, most of the funding is coming from grants, a lot of it from the government, which means if you want to tackle something potentially controversial, you may just not get funded like to do the MDMA research, to do the, to do the sex research, to do the things that the American government doesn't want to get on the record as being something they funded. Right. I mean, that is a challenge. Uh, I think the creative entrepreneurs, I mean, they, they find a way to pursue their curiosity uh, and, and, and see where, where those different things lead. Uh, I think there just needs to be more conversation on how we fund more of everything, right? How we make that more accessible, how we uh, make it so that researchers are, are freer to pursue uh, their fields of interest across the board. Uh, and we see where the science goes, right? I think it's just a commitment to science uh, and publicly funded science and privately funded science. And there are all kinds of commitments to funding more science, period, uh, is really what's required at scale globally, right? When you think about uh, not just in the U.S. or Canada or China, but just everywhere, right? There's so much we don't know yet about everything. So really is that commitment so that we can go and research this potentially controversial areas because keep in mind, you know, those things might be controversial historically for different societal reasons now, but not necessarily uh, over time, right? And those views change. Uh, and it really is enabling the science to push forward that allows us to actually make things maybe less controversial so that we understand more. So the controversies around data and we can actually have discussion around real information and, and real knowledge versus just opinions on how things should be and, and why things should be the way they are. If you could wave a wand and fix some of the problems, what would you fix? 
the number one by far, which is what we're focused on at ScienceVest, is around enabling more of the founders that are committed to building companies around their science to have access to that funding, right? In a way that they might not even need ScienceVest, right? Where they might just be able to do that and pursue that and invite the right partners to them uh, versus, yeah, what we discussed with now. So that's one key one. It's really access to capital across the board, full stop. And then the other one would be around uh, impact investing, right? So around things that matter, right? When, when these companies are successful, it actually changes something for humanity, right? It's not like making the world a better place by better marketing tools, right? It's, you know, that's, that's fine, but uh, it's not something that uh, we, we care about. It's more around uh, how does your core technology uh, help, you know, real people stay healthier or real people, you know, manage their, you know, their personal growth and their mental health, right? Like these things matter. And these founders should have better access to go after some of these things where right now, you know, they're competing with high-end juicer, right, of some kind. You brought up China a little earlier, and China is investing a hell of a lot of money into this and other spaces. How do you think about the race that seems to be building up and really the direction of all of this? In my view, there's no race. The commitment, the scale, the capital, the talent, the resources uh, that China is deploying uh, at scale, uh, not just, I I don't know about the game over. It's just that it is something that needs to be talked about more. The scale that we're talking about here, okay? Where, you know, the, in the U.S., for giving an example, the, the SBIR funding, which is sort of, you know, the, the U.S.'s uh, version of their seed fund for science, our, our biggest co-investor on, on all, basically most of our deals, you know, it's $2.5 billion a year. That's, you know, that, that's it. And in China, across the board, there's hundreds of billions for being deployed across a wide array of uh, interest in research and commercialization, right? So, and that's at scale on the government side, right? That's not to include all the other sources of capital that, that are available. So it are just several orders of magnitude of what's going on there than, than some of the interesting things are happening in the U.S. And to extrapolate, we, we decided that this would probably be the century of synthetic biology and biotech, which means this is the century that China becomes a dynasty again. Hmm. Uh, I don't know about China's in terms of, of that, because there's so much collaboration, so much talent, so much of everything that's required to really get there, right? And you need all hands on deck type of situation. So you need all the sciences and labs. I mean, the core expertise on the U.S. side and a lot of fields of science and, and Canada and Europe and, and LATAM and everywhere, it really is off the charts, right? So it's, it's not a lack of research firepower and talent. It really is a mix of talent and expertise for getting these things uh, to actually reach the market and, and to really make it available for everyone, right? Where everyone globally, there's a more global conversation on how this uh, innovation actually happens and that we're, we're a closer part, of, closer part of that discussion versus just saying, oh, you know, China will do X or Canada will do Y or US. It really is everybody together. If we're going to have the kind of future that we, we talk about, uh, that we all that we all want. It is, but we have different speed limits, so to speak, in terms of morality and in terms of what we're willing to try. What are some of the stuff that's happening now in China off the record that you've heard of? Uh, China, like off the record, I mean, their the, the CRISPR research is is fantastic, right? And these are following global world class standards, right? I mean, that's something that's a misconception about what's happening out there. Um, is that you know, it's what people might have thought in the past. Uh, these are world class labs. I mean, world class contract research organizations. Some of the largest. Uh, of these types operate out of China. So a lot of the startups and others use them for different aspects. So it is really amazing, right? So kind of, I guess on the, on the record side, uh, it really is the, the, the research, the great sort of well done sort of research that's been done on some of the core bleeding edge areas of science, like CRISPR, for example, right? Genetics. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting future. I just wanted to take a quick time out to tell you that the Syndicate Podcast comes to you from yours truly, Matt Ward, has no ads and is designed to help angel investors and tech startups succeed. 
We don't monetize. I do this 100% out of the goodness of my heart and the beautiful networking opportunities to get to chit-chat with some of the smartest, best angels and VCs around the globe and to help you guys. If you appreciate this, tell an angel or VC about us, refer us to a startup, or even leave a review. If you go to thesyndicate.vc slash iTunes, I know it's clunky, it's terrible, but if you leave a review in there, it really helps us with reaching more angel investors and making the program as awesome as possible. If you want to learn a little bit more about us, get some more inside information, get access to our 20-step investor checklist, and get invites into all of our roundtables, including cryptocurrency, artificial intelligence, consumer tech with Tim O'Reilly, and more, go to thesyndicate.vc. If you go there, subscribe, get on our email list, you'll get all of our best content delivered to you completely for free, right to your email address. If you like this podcast and want more like it, thesyndicate.vc. Now, let's get on with our podcast. Any bold predictions or any myths that people need dispelled? Myths. Uh, yeah, the, the thing, the number one is that it takes, it takes a significant amount of time, money and time uh, for, for these kinds of really complicated and breakthrough technologies to both get to market and to find an exit, right? I think that is a huge, huge myth. Um, there's great data around that. There's great articles uh, around the, both the biotech sector and other sectors, how uh, it operates. So I'll give you an example. All of our companies, when we invest, we're for first check. These companies are always have a path to market through generating revenues, even though it'll take them many, many years for different regulatory hurdles to, to go through. That's, that's fine. But it doesn't mean that these guys are generating cash flow. And, and a good example of that is a stem centrics, for example, right? Like one of the largest exits in the U.S. in, in recent memory is essentially a cancer-related company, leveraging all the things that I'm discussing, right? So now everybody's on everybody's radar. And it was right in the middle of Silicon Valley and every single investor, most of which, you know, many of which you maybe uh, interviewed here, they just missed it, right? It's just outside of the core expertise. But it was just sitting there and their companies, their funders and others that, you know, they saw that, right? That that is, that's how things are now. It's just different from where it used to be and how investing uh, used to be thought about. There's just much more opportunity. It just requires a different kind of lens from the investor to be able to see it and, and support those teams. And it's happening faster than expected. Absolutely. What would be, what would be an over-under timeline for when we see the first genetic doping for athletics, for performance, et cetera, in terms of some type of CRISPR or otherwise based enhancements to enhance humanity? I'm sure, I'm sure some of that has been experienced across the board. I mean, now, I mean, when you think about uh, some of the, like, you can even go to nutrition, right? I mean, a part of nutrition is really changing the way your biology is sort of operating. That's sort of the, the, the purpose of it. So it's really extending that uh, now with, what's, with the understanding that we have on some areas of, of biology. So I, I wouldn't be surprised that it's ongoing. I mean, sports is sort of outside of sort of my our current core field. So we, we don't, right? Like, and they, are these enabling technologies for the purpose of sports? Uh, is not necessarily something that we, we focus as much, but more around uh, health, right? And if it has applications to health and sports, and yes, but not for like on the performing enhancing side of, of the equation. So I'm sure it's happening. It's not something that is core to, to our radar. Uh, but yeah, I'm sure they're experimenting right now on all kinds of everything uh, that we've discussed um, to see what, what, you know, how to extract extra additional performance from, from humans. Yeah, I think it's, a, it's really interesting, especially when you have the fusion of the health and nutrition side of things. If you're really yeah. optimizing, do you see unequal access headed down the line for different populations? So that's something I really hope hope for uh, is that because these curves of costs are going down so fast across the board for everything, that my hope is that we will it would actually it would actually reach more than before. 
right? We, we do still need to change how certain regulations have and really change some mindsets in terms of how certain things are able to be accessed. But in terms of cost and access, the trend is towards more access. I'll give you like an example, like for example, the Apple Watch recently upgrade into having EKG technology, right? So, and that's, you know, $500 now, right? Think of it maybe in a few years, it'll be maybe just a few hundred and that technology will be pervasive. But then think about the amount of data now that we're capturing from in terms of health uh, and then how that impacts the preventive measures and other access, so understanding biology and all these things, and then extrapolate and just keep going from there, right? So it is trending towards more access across the board because a lot of the technologies, enabling technologies, we already have a lot of access to them, right? Mobile technologies, integrated circuits, cloud computing, edge computing, all these things uh, together. The trend is towards more access, uh, not less. But we still need to talk about it more publicly so that we make sure that it's top of mind for everyone. And, and we're asking that for founders. Again, the founders that we back, that is at the core of what they think, right? That's what they want uh, is really for it to reach everyone, not just to be in the hands of a few. And some of them are, are just a core core part of the open source ethos, right? That they're just what we were all sort of a part of. Does the open source movement make it hard to invest? Absolutely not. I don't think so. So, I mean, I think Facebook back in the day proved that that's the case, right? They built their entire stack out of a lamp stack, right? Uh, Linux, right and, and PHP etc where people said oh you know PHP you know doesn't scale I was like well um, Facebook is based on PHP so I don't know what you guys are talking about right but people still say that right because they don't know or they're not technical as investors right they're not engineers right and, and they've never built anything so it's hard for them to understand how could you build something that has never been done before in that way uh, if you never have that mindset where it just feels like yeah you can actually stretch it and, and understand the technology to get it there so absolutely not I mean open source won right we won I mean and, and for context on my end you know I started my career on the open source side uh, and I went and worked at Microsoft uh, and then gave it to basically help them and tell them why they would lose and they said well why don't you come and do it here and then you know to come out of that and say you know that's amazing but I want to help real people solve real real problems and you know saving someone 15 minutes of productivity it's not sort of how I want to invest money and I was that's just a small part of Microsoft I love Microsoft but you know when you think about the what happened now with, with Satya changing how Microsoft collaborates with the open source community open sourcing their CLR themselves like their compiler this is like at the core of Microsoft technology anyone can now poke around how compilers work I mean as an engineer that's at the core of what you're able to build and so you know 15 20 years later, we won. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we've seen this movie, let's say, right? I mean, you can't resist, you know, builders' curiosity and builders' commitment to sharing what they've built and having it reach real people. Um, you can resist, but you'll never, it's really difficult to stop. Just like this podcast and you, you know, sharing, you know, this kind of information, this does not exist, right? 10, 20 years ago, nobody would tell us the kinds of things that we're sharing now. And who's going to stop us, right? So the same thing applies to a lot of these technologies and, and open source as a, as a sort of global movement and, and commitment to sharing knowledge, not just open source. I mean, we're talking papers and publishing and all these things, right? I mean, all these scientists sharing their data, collaborating. I mean, that this is all pushed in the direction towards uh, more transparency, more access, more data. So I want to take this a different direction now. Why did Obama bring you to Cuba? Oh, so there's there's just the story there. So the, the, the short version is, you know, when Obama announced, oh, well, tell the story and you'll kind of get it going why. I guess why I invited, which I'm still trying to figure out myself. But the, the short version is when, when Obama announced that the regulations would change or the, the relations would change for Cuba, the global startup ecosystem community primarily led through Startup Weekend. I don't know if you're familiar with Startup Weekend, right? So this, you know, over a course of a weekend, you, you are able to create companies. This operates in over 600 cities around the world, everywhere from Iran to Yemen, right? Israel to every major city or small city or small town, everywhere. 
And that community I've been a part of and helped scale uh, over over its life. And now it's now a part of my tech stars. You know, we all, everybody talks with each other uh, and they know each other, but we did not have anyone in Cuba. So when that changed, my first my first comment to the, to the global community was, hey guys, you know, it sounds like there's a startup weekend happening, you know, who's making that happen? And and basically there's not just that there wasn't a response, it's that they, we literally did not have someone from the community on the ground that had real communications with Cuba. So it was really disconnected from everything, which is was not was a surprise to everyone. Um, so that meant that it was us, right? Like we were going to do it. Um, we had to do it. And we, need to, we needed to find out who on the ground had their community in mind and could share with us what they wanted that community to be and how they would, but what does that look like? What does the technical system look like from the Cuban perspective? So I, I did a trip you know, to Cuba to basically find them because I've done that all over the world. Like, I, it's easier, I guess, in, in my experience to find others that are builders and like, build their communities. And through, through, through the network, I found sort of guys that were running around the first meetup in Cuba and they were able to navigate the, the politics and the local and everything around it so that everybody understood that it was around community building. It was not about politics. And that enabled the entire global community to support them. And Alex, uh, Alex Medina uh, and, and their crew, kudos to them for, for really taking the risk of, of really engaging with their community and really sharing and explaining and doing the education and everything internally and guiding all of us on, on how to build community. So we did a startup weekend. Uh, that startup weekend was very successful, just getting the word out and everybody sort of really communicate and collaborate and, and connecting the uh, Cuban ecosystem with ecosystems globally. Uh, and from there, I was the first, you know, investor on the ground. Everybody was talking about uh, investing in Cuba, but none had ever even been there. None, you know, were looking at what the Cubans cared about. None of them really were, uh, you know, putting their capital over their mouth. It's actually going there and supporting founders and figuring out like how they can be helpful. So I think a part of that, you know, just went around the rounds. I know that, you know, basically a few weeks before the trip, you know, White House calls me and says, hey, you know, stand by, right? Like you, you know, you, there might be a chance for uh, be a part of like the president's team to go down there. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> President Cole, like, what are you going to say? No. So I was like, all right. And, and I thought it was going to be a, a lot of people. I ended up, I was like, you know, like why me? You know, I've been doing X. But when we went down there, you know, there was a certain event around entrepreneurship and, and that was at the invite of both the Cuban government and the U.S. government, right? So it was a little bit different than just, just going there because the U.S. invites you. It's like you're actually vetted and invited by Cuban government. Everybody knows what's going on. And when it was there, they kind of pulled us apart and we spent, you know, time with the president just when we were hanging out about, you know, what's the future of ecosystem building is about and kind of what's going on locally. And, and it was just us, the founders of Stripe, I mean, Shield style of um, uh, NEA at the time. And he now runs his own fund and just a few of us, right? So it was, yeah, that, so that's, that's how that happened. That's kind of why I guess the president reminded me was around, you know, actually doing versus the talking. I mean, you can imagine at the time the amount of chatter around Cuba, everybody talking about everything, but then, you know, what actually, what did people actually execute on, uh, on the ground support, right? In terms of real companies or real innovation happening. And I was lucky that, you know, the founders on the ground of their community, you know, trusted me to support them. Just as we ask of any founder, right, that we invest in, like we ask them to trust us. And, and, and those, those guys down there, you know, they did. And we did what we say we're going to do. It's just help them do their thing. Not our thing, not a U.S. thing, uh, not what the president wants. It's really what they want. Uh, and that just happens to be what we all want, which is more community, more collaboration, you know, more innovation. And it worked out. So was Cuba still yeah. communist at the time? Absolutely. Just like China's communist, right? And Vietnam. 
So people who side of the most successful communist country is um, honestly kicking the U.S. butt in a lot of ways. Um, it's communist and Vietnam as well. So people forget. And, and they like to emphasize, you know, the difference around Cuba. And I was trying to share. That's just something I wrote about is, you know, there's things that are like pro-cons around it. But, you know, the Cuban uh, healthcare ecosystem is something, the healthcare system is not something people need to really worry about. It's world-class compared to across Latin. I'm from Puerto Rico. So, Corcantes, I'm from Puerto Rico. So, we're supposed to have the best in class everywhere, global, because we're U.S. I mean, we're a colony of the U.S., right? And, and that's super controversial and whatnot. But we're supposed to have the best access in the U.S. side. And the Cubans, they just run laps around the kind of healthcare we have access to in, in Puerto Rico. Same thing with education, right? Think about education at scale. They've really had, you know, they lead right, in terms of literacy rates and, and education rates and access to university. And, and they just have that. So through a communist country that's close to the US, so imagine if they had access to capital. Just imagine, right? Like what, what they could do if they had access to the markets, if they had access just like Mexico and uh, Panama or Colombia or Brazil had, right? And we could all collaborate together with the Cubans and the Canadians and everybody. She'd just be like, hey, let's just build stuff and figure it out just like every major VC, a startup, or whatnot is doing things in China, why can't we have the same conversation around Cuba? China, China and Vietnam are pseudo-communist in their, in their structures. Cuba was much more of a, a pure communist regime for a very long time. Vietnam yeah, I mean, is pretty can, much pure We can pure get into like, all, the, all the politics of it, but the short version is that it's all sort of the rules of the game of how to do business, and each of those countries had their own very specific and very difficult and complicated rules to get into the Chinese market, to do the Vietnamese market, same thing for the Cubans. There's a lot of uh, global companies are bringing out out of Cuba, especially now uh, through the change, but it's uh, it's still difficult, primarily because of U.S. restrictions on on the other international companies. So it's a very interesting topic, which we can kind of dig in if you like. But yeah, the, the U.S. does the same with Puerto Rico, right? Boats have to come from the U.S. to Puerto Rico, which makes everything more expensive. Yeah, so that applies to ev every island. So it applies to Hawaii, it applies to Alaska, right? So it was more of like a protectionist measure on the U.S. side, which everybody is fighting against, right? The Jones Act specifically, and that's hopefully something that we also need to talk about. Like, there's no reason why that should be the case, right? Just, just change that, limit that, and let's just keep it moving. Because trade is much more complicated than just where the where the boat trip comes from and how it needs to dock, right? Just because you change that doesn't mean that magically there will be a lot of trade going in and out from other sources into Puerto Rico and the lines and freight lines and all these things that, that go with that. So it's a super interesting topic that we should talk more of. How do we enable more trade in a way that helps those that don't have access to anything to really be a part of the global innovation community? That's what ecosystem building is about, right? It's, all these things are happening globally now versus before it was trying to be controlled or it's supposed to be Silicon Valley, but now Silicon Valley is just half uh, of VC globally versus maybe 90% just a few years ago. And that's just going to continue to accelerate because there's just much more capital. And as founders, as we're all more successful and we build funds and we help funds and all these things, that just happens more and more, right? Uh, and we see that in, in the program I run in Puerto Rico, I support in, I'm an investment committee for in Puerto Rico, parallel 18, right? Where you have companies from 60 countries going now to Puerto Rico. And now these companies, now they have funding from, you know, tier one VCs everywhere. Well, you know, where were they when these companies needed funding in their countries, right? Everybody talks about how they're funding things for super risky on the first check side, but it's basically YC leading the way globally at scale. And then maybe a few programs, but it's just YC, right? Really that first check for founders that don't know anybody, are not going to move to the Bay, right? they're not going to really build it in the traditional way. They're going to build it their way. And, you know, you see that in the companies that come out of uh, these ecosystems, like, you know, Rappi, for example, you know, one of the most highest value companies in, in LATAM, you know, YC company, right? Like, where were the investors? 
investors then. So uh, it's uh, fascinating what's happening. It's just getting faster and faster for everything, not just uh, for tech, really it's biosynthetic. And, and it's led by, you know, doers, right? Builders, entrepreneurs, and uh, operators that understand now how capital works as well. And, and connectivity. Absolutely. So Ramfus, I think both of us would agree that we need to do a better job as a as a species, uh, allocating capital for the the types of returns and change that we want to see in the world. Talk to me a little bit more about the impact investing side now that we lost all of that recording we just had. No, um, the short version of, of what we're discussing is that the purpose the purpose of capital should be to finance the change that we all care about, period, right? That your values are aligned with your investing. Uh, on our end, that looks to me personally uh, a science vest, obviously, right? We invest in core deep technologies, but there is a lens around the UN Sustainable Development Goals that that we care about, right? So AI for marketing tech, no. Uh, AI for drug discovery for cancer research, yes. And then the impact investing side, that would apply for all kinds of uh, investments, public investments, private investments, and then specifically the private investments on everything, right? That applies to funds and what they invest in and to real estate and everything else that's that's possible there. And my view around impact is that the returns are, are table stakes, right? They're, they're typically when people say impact, they they immediately default to something that they don't, they don't really know about because they're just used to the financial instruments and the way finance used to work. But now the opportunity around impact is that uh, the, the, we know how a lot of these seals or other opportunities work. Uh, and it's really to support more of everything across the world. Uh, new kinds of fund managers all over the world is essentially an impact investing, right? Because what they will invest in will reflect the environments that they're in. So if you invest in a fund, in a BC fund in South Africa that invests in the Pan-African region, uh, well, you can see the outcome will be companies like Andela, right? That could be viewed under the lens of impact versus your traditional thinking of impact, that it's some type of charity or philanthropy. Uh, and the other side of that, uh, at the other end, could be everything from affordable housing and how do you redefine the models uh, around impact and how do you facilitate that capital flow from the private markets and the private wealth to these opportunities on, on the other side, right? So that's really the space that I care a lot about and focused on uh, as well. And if you had a call to action for listeners, something you would want them to take away from this interview, look into a quote, et cetera, what would it be and why? At the core uh, would be that for those with, with the means, networks, uh, and capital to, to support and, and invest in different types of assets, uh, to back things and, and companies and funds and managers and everything else that's just different, right? To really dig deep and understand the opportunities that are available now that were not available before. Uh, and to trust that the change that they want to see will not look like whatever patterns they are all used to looking for or looking at. Uh, so how they view uh, and understand those things, there's an opportunity, I would call them and invite them to really fund the change that they want to see. Insanity is doing the same things over and over and expecting different results. Last yeah. question, I know you got to run. What is a bold prediction with a timeline? Uh, bold prediction, I think that would be that within the next 10 years, we'll have uh, a path to market for uh, real therapies that that target ending age age related certain age related diseases, right? Or, or, or ending yeah, ending age related diseases. So we'll have therapies for uh, Parkinson's, for Alzheimer's, for for different types of cancer. But the focus will not be the disease. The focus will be around enabling the body to operate as it did when it was younger. Which would be incredible for all of us. How how old do you think you're going to make it? Any predictions? Oh man, I I you know I wish I wish. 
wish, you know, there's a lot to do. So if, if I could uh, just uh, eliminate that clock, that'd be amazing. That would be amazing. I think that's what we're all headed for. Thanks for coming today, Ramfus. Sorry about the technical difficulties. Where's the best place for people to find you? Best place is uh, through Twitter, uh, J Ramfus, J-R-A-M-P-H-I-S. Awesome. And we'll throw links and everything in the show notes. Thanks and hope you guys enjoyed this. It's been a, it's been a lot of fun. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening to The Syndicate, the podcast where angel investors and VCs go off the cuff and discuss the ins and outs of the venture ecosystem. We're here to share the tips and tricks of the best in the business, because startups and tech make the pie bigger. To learn more about us and what we do, visit thesyndicate.vc. And to join our syndicate on AngelList, just go to thesyndicate.vc slash join and get access to some of the best startup deals. This has been another episode of The Syndicate. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you guys again next week.